Welcome to Being Human. This week's guest is Glenda O'Young. She's the founding executive director of the Human Systems Dynamics Institute and also the author of Adaptive, Adaptive Action, which is a book I read and thoroughly enjoyed in preparation for this interview. Glenda, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. So in your book, I well, you, t- you tell the story of reading... Uh, James Gleek's book um, as as being a sort of a, a moment in your conversion or um, orientation towards this complexity way of thinking. Um, maybe you could just take our listeners back to, if that is the moment for, to when you first started on this journey of getting interested in complexity. It was indeed the first moment and I was in the middle of a business crisis. I was an entrepreneur was running a technical training and documentation company. And we had, this was early in the time of computers, and we had a really structured way to design and develop training and documentation for computers. Everything was perfectly under control. And then, in 1986, it went out of control. Our clients changed their architectures, systems architectures, they merged, they went total quality, they went global, environment shifted. And I didn't know what to do. I was essentially an engineer, and the world was not matching my engineering approach. And so I was about ready to close my business. I was exhausted and frustrated and kind of scared. But I wanted to take a holiday and just take a deep breath. So I called a friend of mine who was at the University of Chicago, and I said, hey, Rick, read any good books lately? I've got two requirements. It has to have nothing to do with computers and nothing to do with business. He said, well, you know, there's this book I've been reading. And he and I had studied history and philosophy of science together at St. John's College. And he said, you know, I think you might really be interested in this Making a New Science by James Blick. And so I dove into it thinking it was going to be a great escape. And what I found was every single chapter gave me insights into my business challenges. And it was at that point that I was, this science held a paradigm was much better fit for my own practice and for the needs of my clients than any of the existing paradigms about management and leadership or organization development. So it was, it was quite an eye-opener. And at that point, it was interesting because I couldn't find anything that was written or published about applications of complexity to human systems. I learned later that there were people who were writing Kevin Dooley, for example, and Jeff Goldstein, who were writing, but they couldn't get published because it was so foreign. Um, and so it wasn't until the 1991 that I found a community of people who were also pursuing this question. But that hadn't stopped me. In the meantime, I had used it, I practiced it, I'd written about it, taught about it, um, was in full bore practice by the time I found a community in 91. Okay, right. And so, and did you use it to to save your your company at the time or, or how did it get how did it get applied oh, yes so i went i went back to work and i explained it all to my staff they were not the least bit interested <laughs> that was my first lesson in using complexity was much more powerful than talking about complexity in the workplace <laughs> and so i used to reframe what i meant to plan and it was really the first experience I had of focusing on reality as it is. 
and trying to see the patterns and the energy that's locked in the patterns in this moment, and then thinking about how to leverage that power to shift the patterns to the next stage. And of course, the way I think about it, talk about it, and do it now is much more sophisticated than it was then, but essentially it's the same thing. You said, if I look at myself and my staff and my clients as complex adaptive systems, what are the patterns that I see? What are the things that are fractal patterns? What are the boundaries where the energy is blocked in the system? What are the self-similarities? What are the dissipative structures that are emerging? What are the breakthrough changes that are happening? Um, and using those models and metaphors, that understanding about how a complex system works, well, maybe we it's into options for action. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's probably four uh, terms in there that may be unfamiliar. So, so the first one. Um, so you talked about uh, talked about energy locked in patterns, and then you talked about fractal patterns. So, yeah, can you can you unpack that a bit? What Yes, what I'd like to do, if it's okay, it's just to back yeah. up a bit, um, yeah. to talk about this distinction and about the paradigm that shifts. Yeah. yeah, sure. And paradigm shifts, if you haven't crossed it yet, the words on the other side don't make any sense. And if you've crossed it, it's hard to talk back across the paradigm. So let's hold those words for a moment, mm. the paradigm shift, and let's zoom in and look at the paradigm shift for a moment. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, often the shift is talked about as going from me- mechanistic to organic change, from certainty to uncertainty, from um, predictability to unpredictability. And all of those descriptions are fine, but they describe what's happening. So many of the current metaphors, many of the current approaches in complexity allow you to look backwards, recognize it, and describe it in what's gone before. But for me, that wasn't enough because I needed to use it. I couldn't just talk about it. I needed to understand enough of the explanatory base of the work to be able to influence it. So the two kind of principal factors of the way that I approach the work is captured in one of our simple rules. We search for what's true and useful. So the truth part is we are very rigorous applications of the science as we understand it. And parts of the science that we don't understand, we don't use. Because the language, unless we understand why and how the transformations are happening, then it's not true to us. And the useful part is it needs to influence action. It can't just be theoretical. It's also got to be pragmatic for real leaders in real situations in real world. So the true and useful pieces. Now, that, what that forced us to do was to look at this paradigm shift, but what were the mechanisms that drove change? We know in the old mechanistic system, it was mass, it was distance, and it was time. And all of the causality in the Newtonian system can be broken down into those three factors. About power. You can talk about power, you can talk about change, you can talk about velocity and speed, you can talk about transformations in those very fundamental units of explanation. But those don't work 
in systems that where the boundaries are open, where there are lots of differences that make a difference, really high dimension systems, and in systems where there's nonlinear causality. So those rules of physical, stable, space and time systems don't work when you're dealing with information or energy or transformation. And so what we were looking for on the other side was what's an ex explanation for the things that can't be explained by Newtonian physics. And that was the place where, does that make sense? So how do it you does. It so does, but I'm, understand it? Yeah, but still, I'm still with, okay, but surely even in the old me mechanistic world, I'm still looking for what's true and what's useful. So what's different about the, the truth of the utility of this new paradigm? Hmm. Well, those things are true and useful given a certain set of constraints. So Newtonian mechanics is really useful. Don't throw it away. It works under a certain set of conditions. And those are three conditions. This is part of our explanatory base. There are three conditions under which those old rules work. The first one is that the system has to be bounded. That boundary is, it's a closed system. The second is that there have to be a small number of differences that matter in that system. And they need to be related to each other as dependent and independent variables. Small number, relevant differences. And the causality has to be one way. A causes B, end of story. So when those conditions are in place, Newtonian mechanics are really true and useful. The problem with human systems is they aren't closed. They're open. They're not low dimension. There are many variables that make a difference. And the nonlinearity in relationship is built into them. And so the expectations that we have for old kinds of systems, what worked beautifully when we were working in slow change, closed systems, lines of power, clear differentiation. In those times, those were close enough. But in the world that I was living in, in 1986, and the world that others have begun to see, that kind of expectation and explanation just is not sufficient. Is okay. no and useful in our current world. Okay. Often, sometimes, but it's not always. So we're still looking for the truth and we're still looking for what's useful, but we're, we're looking through a different lens or in different places? Through a different lens, we're asking different questions and we're noticing different patterns, which is part of what happens in the paradigm shift. So I can give you some examples of what happens when you see things on the other side. Some of the assumptions that fall apart when you cross this paradigm. And that you can think about time as a timeline. There's past, simple past, there's future, that you can project on a line into the future. This whole principle that we think about time as a line along which we're moving. And much of our leadership practice, much of our teaching practice, much of our technical practice, a project management, a Gantt chart, is based on this assumption that time moves in one direction and that it is a line. But our experience as human beings in this world is that it's not like that at all. That the past is a broad frame, a range of things. Uh, technically, we call it a manifold. 
it's a large multidimensional space that includes your history, my history, their history, all the different experiences that I might have had in the past. It's not a straight line. And in the same way, the future is um, what Brian calls the adjacent possible. It's a really wide frame of all the things that might be. And those two meet in this very moment. So everything that has passed collapses into this moment. And when I take action, it unfolds into the future. So that's a very practical transformation. So I went back, 1986, went back to my business. And rather than thinking, I have been on this trajectory and I'm growing the business and the business is growing, and I've talked to my bankers and all of that, kind of, I said instead, what is all the history of my experience with my clients and my work and my experience and my staff? And what if that is accessible to me now? And if I imagine that, what can I unfold into a future for this business? And it was that that saved the business. But as long as I thought I was on a straight line path, the only way was down, right? To closing the business in a quarter because the cash flow was gone, right? But right, once because I you were looking through it through a Newtonian view of momentum in a particular direction, right? Yeah, yeah. And that what had happened in the past determined what was going to be in the future. And that my options were constrained by what others had told me was possible. That my history held only the things that I had thought were relevant, not all of the other experiences that might come. And so it made the system open much higher dimension, and much more nonlinear. And so I was better fit to work in a complex environment. Right, right. Yeah, I can imagine your staff being uh, minds blown with uh, some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> and so what I realized was if I'm doing that and making choices for my own action with that intelligence in my head, and I'm going to do things, some of them will look a little strange, some of them will look right, but they'll be effective interactions with the complex system so that I can, as I talk about it now, set conditions for the system to be productive. Okay. Set conditions. So what were some of the conditions you started setting? Well, there are around three ideas, three conditions for self-organizing. And so the underlying assumption is that complex systems are self-organizing. That interactions among the parts generate systems and patterns and structures and possibility. So that's the first thing. So at the time, and still, there are many people who think about self-organizing as a black box. That so you have the before and you have the after that you can describe, but you don't really know what's happening in the middle. Or it's some kind of mysterious, magical something. But I, I wasn't satisfied with that because I wanted to know what's going on in that black box. And that was where I began to see the conditions for self-organizing. The conditions that influence the speed of the self-organizing process, its path, and what its outcomes are going to be. And those three are relatively simple and obvious when you hear about them. So the first one is 
a container. In order to self-organize, a system needs for a moment a boundary within its which it's working. Now, there are an infinite number of possible boundaries, but the system focuses in on one or a moment in order to self-organize. The second is there have to be a small number of differences that make a difference inside that boundary. And the third is the parts have to be connected. I went back to my, so those are the three, C, D, E. I went back to my business and I realized that the container that I had been working with was an institution bounded by my board and my definition of my corporation. For me, that had been the primary container. But I said, well, what if instead I think of the container as a community of people who want to increase productivity. And that I'm going to look at that as my container for work rather than my business. As you can imagine, that opened up many, many more possibilities. I had also been driven by the variables of schedule and budget. Those were the differences that made a difference. And I was pushing schedule and pushing budget um, and optimizing those two variables. I said, well, what if those are differences that make a difference? I don't want to forget them. But what if I think about other differences that make a difference, like uh, professional development of my staff, about the patterns of performance among teams in my client space. If I look at not what someone understands about the computer, but the computer-human interface as being the important place. This was the point at which people were beginning to talk about graphical user interfaces. Mm. How human beings interacted with computers. So, what if I began to think about that? The differences for human experience, a relationship, for productivity, for opportunity, rather than just budget and schedule. And what if I looked at nonlinear connections so that rather than my leadership role being a role of control and direction, it became a dialogue of inquiry, of exploration with my clients, my marketing relationships shifted to teaching and learning relationships, my relationships with my vendors, my relationships with myself really became teaching and learning experiences rather than sell, selling and solving experiences. So those were the three conditions, the container and the differences in the exchanges. And once I reframed them to be open and multiple, and nonlinear, then I had a very large number of opportunities and options that had been invisible to me before. Hmm. Okay. And then new, as you say, new options emerged for action that simply weren't there before you started thinking in that way. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that we do today, Richard, is to help people when they're stuck in their current paradigm. How can we help them see their challenge differently so that they can understand it in more useful ways and take action to shift the pattern and move forward? That's the core of human systems dynamic. People who are moving along and successful in the world as it is, they don't even need this. I think that's great. Um, 
if, if someone comes to me and they say, you know, basically, I really like the way things are going, but my staff isn't coming along with me. But I've got it all under control. I know what I'm doing. I just say, that's very good. You should go talk to somebody else because um, you don't need me. People who need us in HSD are the people who are stuck the way I was in 1986. When they're doing what they think should work, they're doing it really well, they're getting better and better, and things keep getting worse and worse. Right. Um, one client that I've been working with recently, um, um, a medical school, and they're culture had gotten very um, destructive and competitive and not a good place for students to learn and grow. Um, and so I came in and began to look at the patterns that were there. And I realized that they were all, each of them individually, doing exactly what they thought they needed to do to make things work well. And the more they did it, the worse it got. The more they focused on their expertise, the more they tried to do the right thing, the more they followed their separate paths, they were working harder and harder and getting more and more stuck. And so my work with them over a period of eight months was to help them begin to see instead a different way to think about the pattern so that they could work together to see it differently, to understand it in useful ways, and then to make different choices individually and collectively to move the system forward. They were stuck, and they knew they were stuck. But I think that that is one of the major aspects of, of human systems dynamics, is that we are deeply theoretical. And I'd love to go there. We could you know, do some but deep theory. We can go that pathway if you want. But it's also eminently practical. We have, we have uh, associates who are kindergarten teachers. And they use adaptive action and pattern logic to help their kindergartners teach each other to read. Okay. What? what? What are the patterns you're seeing? So what's happening now? And what can we do to make it better? And these kids, little kids, are doing it together with their simple rules. We also have clients who are working with the World Bank in major agricultural transformation in South America and in Africa, and major healthcare transformation in Africa and in Canada. Because they're also working in complex systems that are in transformation. But the reason that the application is so simple is because the theory is really deep and solid. Complexity theories that are really complicated. I think that's because they don't really understand the science in a deep way. Okay. Um, well, maybe we should start with this. The, I mean, you talk about this in the book, and then maybe we'll come back to the theory, but the, the what, the so what, the now what. The, so, yeah, so talk us through uh, these, these steps that you've just, just described. Mm. The people... Well, first, it's not rocket science. Anyone who's successful in a human system is doing this, right? And if you think about the leaders or the parents or the community organizers that you've known in your life who have been most effective, it's because they are sensitive to what's going on in their environments. They're creative about 
seeing what opportunities might happen, and they're decisive in action. And that's what we capture in this fairly simple cycle. What's going on is the first step of data collection, of connecting with what is, not the bias of what I think should be, not judgment about what used to be, or hope for what might be, but very concretely saying, what, what is currently in this space? That's the what step. The somewhat step is the analysis, one, the meaning-making, sense-making step, um, where you say, well, which of the parts of this are significant? What's important? How does the current space match with what I would like to see? What are the options that we've seen before? What's my intelligence about what has worked? What have I learned in the past? Who else is in this space that can help us see? So it's a process of stirring around in the observations to be able to see what's possible. And from that emerges an action. Now that action may be tiny and fast, or it may be a long-term arc of transformation has lots of little adaptive action cycles in it. But once that action is taken, then what is shifts. What was is no more, and there's a new what that has taken shape in this complex world. And so you come back again to what, and then so what, and now what. And that cycle, even though it's been around for a long time and people talk about it a lot, it's total quality, this uh, plan, study, do, act uh, cycle of total quality. It's the scientific method. It's all kinds of psychological interventions, behaviorism. And so it's not, it's not new. There are a couple of things that make it different in the way that we use it. One is that it's framed in questions. It's not collect data, analyze the data, plan action. It's what is going on? So it holds you continually in inquiry so that you are open to the dynamics of the system as they emerge, all the surprises that are present. So they're, they're in inquiry, what, so what, and now what? The second thing is, because there are three steps, you can't get lost. But if you're stuck after the action cycle, if you go backwards a step or forwards a step, you're bound to be in the right place. So you can't, there's no way to get stuck in the cycle. Okay. If there are four steps, there's always one you can't see from where you're standing. So the fact that there are three is very important. Um, the third thing is that we link it to pattern logic, which is a way to see the current space that fits in the new post-positivist paradigm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Post-positive. Post-positivist. Post-positivist. And also post-positivist. So, We've, we've talked a bit about the science, we've talked a bit about the practice, but there's also a philosophical underlying, underpinning work um, that belongs here. And uh, at risk of 
um, skating over some really important things. You can think about the history of philosophy over the last century and a bit as a belief that the world is out there, I manipulate it, I move it, I shift it. That's reality. And my job as a thinking human being is to understand that reality that sits out there, a kind of objective perspective. That was straight positivism. Wit in the early 20th century, mathematics and science and philosophy started to say, but wait a minute, there's something going on inside here. This what's out there. It either really influences what's out there or it influences how I interact with what's out there. But there was a march during the 20th century away from reality existing outside, a reality being in my perception, that I totally construct reality as it stands. And some complexity people are in that positivist view. They think that what we're really talking about is positivist complexity. There are others who go to the other extreme and say, I'm creating it all, and it's all about relationship, and it's all in my head, and nothing really exists because I'm constantly creating it all the time. Um, that's an, those are kind of extremes of philosophical stances. And you, I'm sure you've, in your journeys around complexity, you've seen people who stand at both of those extremes. Um, we find neither of those completely helpful, but both of them somewhat helpful. And so we searched for philosophers, 20th century philosophers, who were able to stand in the middle of that, seeing the problems with straight positivism and seeing the problems of total constructivism and finding ways to stand in the middle of those two. And so we began and to... So, I'm sorry, and so constructivism, is that the paradigm did you describe where it's all inside yeah. and, me and, creating, and I'm creating reality inside me, something like that? Yeah. Uh, and a variation of that is the, a kind of community constructivism that we together are creating it as a, an artifact of our social interaction. Um, and there, there are benefits, but there are also risks to taking that stand. And is that where you, because we had Chris Moyles on the show, who's a co-author with Ralph Stacey, is that where you would place Stacey closer to that end of the, of the spectrum, right? Yes, probably, probably way at that end of the spectrum. And I think you'd agree with that. Um, when Stacy says there's no such thing as a system, that's, that's what he's saying, basically, is that there's nothing that persists outside of me that has any reality to it. But that's what I understand him saying. Um, and I see three risks to that, basically, um, and three reasons that I didn't choose that kind of a philosophical path for HSD. One is that it separates the human being from a practical life of action. And um, I'm just too into any wicked problems. And it, it, maybe it's my 
uh, Protestant work ethic background. Uh, but I really want to make a difference in the world out there as it stands. Even if I can't predict it, even if I can't control it, even if I'm not its lord and master, I, I want to make a difference in the world as it is. So you want to believe that there's a world out there that exists, that persists, that I can intervene in in some way. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to believe it. I can't not believe it. <laughs> but, right? So uh, I, think it was, I think it was Hume who said, I'm walking along. I bumped my toe in a rock and it hurts. I didn't make that up. He didn't quite say it that way. Oh no, it was uh <laughs> so I I bump my nose on a failing company or a team that's not working or a community that's suffering from HIV AIDS and doesn't have enough medical staff or a hospital where the emergency room is overflowing with people who should be getting help someplace else. Um that's that's there, and I bumped my toe on it, and it hurts. I make that up. So that that's one piece. The second piece is that the constructivist perspective uh, led to, in academia and other places, kind of preoccupation with how you say something, not what is said. Get very self-involved then about what the language is and how we're talking about the language and becomes very ethereal about distinctions. We used to talk about angels on the head of a pin, right? That we end up talking about differences that make a difference to us because we're deep in the philosophy, but they don't really make a difference to the rest of the world. So it's about relevance. Um, and, and the third thing is it's kind of a dead end. There's no... Um, energy in it that moves it towards something else. So lots of the early work in constructivism and later work too, it um, kind of comes to a screeching halt because there's no place else to go because it's self-referential and it doesn't move forward in time and space. Um, right. But something I took from Stacey was this idea that... Um, as an agent in reality, whatever it is, there's still something that's valuable for me as a manager or a leader. Um, if I broaden the conversation or I deepen the conversation or I uh, um, provoke in some way. So it seemed to me that he still saw a role for the leader manager. So in that sense, he didn't see it as a, as a dead end. Am I right? Yeah, I'm not saying he saw it as a dead end. Right. Okay, no, that's unfair. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. Um, but I also agree that the things that he sees deeply about responsive processes and about dialogue and the power of self-awareness and reflection and reflexivity, all of those things are very important. I don't think they should go away. that is larger and more relevant to experience. And that doesn't, that doesn't deny them, it doesn't weaken them, it just says it's a part of the picture, it's just not the whole picture. 
Mm. So what we were looking for was a philosophy and a practice that would allow us to use Newtonian mechanics, clarity, build things when it was necessary, plan a project, do a work, do an intervention when it was possible, and to be able to step outside of those conditions, to stretch those conditions, to be able to explore and see widely and innovate and create something new. So in HSD, we work with both of those extremes, closed, low dimension, linear systems, when necessary. I want my car to run and I want somebody to fix my car. And the other side, where the boundaries are open, where the dimensions are high, where the interactions are nonlinear, that's the place of the arts and the, the gentle stimulation. Uh, that space of arts and possibility, and, and that's really, really valuable. And that I, as a, as a conscious human being, need to be able to work at both those extremes. I need competence at both of those extremes and everything in between. But even more than that, I need courage to decide at any given moment what is the current situation in the world. So what is needed in this moment? Is it needed to move more toward the structured, predictable, closed-end space? Or in this moment, does this time, does this place need to move more toward the open, exploratory, creative end of the spectrum? And how can I help them move? So that's my adaptive action, right? What's the current, what's the current pattern along that continuum? So what do I think might be useful? Now what am I going to do to help them shift? to shift those conditions, open their containers or close them, increase the number of things they're concerned about or decrease them, make the interactions more equal and two-way or more singular directional. And that is our work. Mm. Um, and I was saying there are a couple of philosophers who support that. One is Habermas and the other is Adorno, who were 21st century philosophers who also were struggling with the uh, uh, deficits of positivism and the deficits of constructivism and looking for an alternative path. And it's that alternative path philosophically where HSD sits. That was probably too much philosophy 101. No, I think that's that's fascinating. But I suppose we we can't because as you say this is about a paradigm shift. You can't escape the philosophy, can you? Because it's this is coming from a place of of deep thought, isn't it? This whole this whole new approach to leadership or management in in the human realm emanates from there so it's, it's it's kind of difficult to not <laughs> to not look at yeah. the philosophy yeah. Yeah. so there are a couple of things that that absolutely for me the philosophy is very important and if someone wants to be in the field of hsd they need to understand some of the philosophy if they want simply to be able to function in a complex system use the tools they don't really need to distract themselves with the complexity 
philosophy. Um, but one of the things that I learned about paradigm shifts as I was studying the history and philosophy of science was that if you think about theory and practice side by side, paradigms are built on the theory side. Reinforcing the theory, building the language, building the explanations, understanding what causality is. And that a theory can live for a long time until the practice starts to say, that's not working. That's not working. So Galileo, for example, said, you know, Aristotelian, the four sources, isn't helping me build a bridge, wasn't sufficient for the practice. And so it was at that intersection of anomalies where practice and theory don't match that forced that paradigm shift, that forced the relativism, uh, relativity paradigm shift, that forced paradigm shifts. So that's where I think we are now. That we have a theory for causation and power and social structure and governmental structure and economic structures that have served us well and theories that underpin them. And we're in a world where the practice is not effective. Now, we've got practitioners who are doing really interesting things out of whatever their theory base is. But they're not following the rules, right? Trump didn't follow the rules. The Brexit tears didn't follow the rules. Because the rules are in the old paradigm. And they're working in a practice that is based on something else, some other place. And we are, I think, as a human race, a conscious human race, trying to figure out what those rules are on the other side. Hmm. And that that's the paradigm we're shifting. So to zoom that back down to the practical world that we live in, we talk about doing praxis. That we have theory of HSD and we have practice of HSD. And we push them, each one. So we push the theory, the philosophy, the perspective as far as we can until we get stuck. We don't understand something in the theory. Then we go back to our practice. And we say, where do we see that in the lives that we're working with and the work that we're doing. And how can we take what we learn from the theory over here into practice and design an intervention and see what happens until we get stuck? And then we go back to the theory and say, okay, what have we learned from the practice that will allow us to move our theory base farther until we're stuck? And so we move back and forth between theory and practice, constantly pushing the edges and so people who practice HSD don't have answers. HSD is not an answer-generating space. It's an inquiry-generating space. So that wherever right. you are and whatever you're engaged in, whether it's abstract philosophy or concrete kitchen mechanics, you're seeing what's there. And then doing that again. So that that, what, so what, now what works equally well in theory development and practice. Okay, yeah. So you apply, it's, a, it's sort of recursive, you apply the same approach to theory development. Right. Right, I get that. 
Um, yeah. You also apply it across all different uh, contexts. So we can think about my own emotional well-being in terms of adaptive action and pattern logic. What are the containers, differences and exchanges that are giving me a pattern of emotional being? So what does that mean now? What might I do? We can see it in the team. So what's the pattern of the team? What are the containers that are effective? What are the differences they're focusing on? How are they connecting with each other? So what does that mean now? What can I do? We can see it for an organization. We can see it for a community. We can see it in education and healthcare and agriculture. In leadership, in arts, in community development, in politics. So no matter where we look in the human system, both adaptive action, pattern logic are relevant. It crosses the mind-body split. It crosses the disciplinary split in academe. It integrates knowing and action into fairly simple, incredibly simple, Right. It's interesting you bring up mind-body because one of the things that Stacy talks about um, in, in his work is this, this rejection of a cognif cognitivist approach. Um, and is, is, there, yeah, is there a parallel between some of the thinking that's developing in terms of mind-body approaches um, I mean, we've had a couple of people on this show talk about trauma recovery from a mind-body perspective. And a lot of my own work's been done on that basis. And, um, and, and complexity thinking. It, do, do you see a relationship there? Have you had any exposure to that? It's a really good question. I know people who are using complexity theory to look at that. <clears throat> um, the way that I think about that is that there are, in my physical body, patterns, self-organizing patterns, containers and differences and exchanges, physically. And that I can see those patterns, influence those patterns physically, as well as I can in terms of ideas or theory. So last weekend, for example, um, I had a really sore muscle in my back. And my first thought was, oh, I'll just go take a muscle relaxant and fix it. But I thought, well, what if I see that pattern not as a medical problem, but as a postural problem? So what is the pattern? So I went around my house and my office and said, this is where I spent time. What were the differences there? How did I feel in there? I'll stay here for 15 minutes and I'll see how that shifts, that intervention. Then I'll go to the next place where I spend time and I'll sit there for a while or I'll stand there. I'll get, put myself in a yoga pose for a bit and see. Consciously watch how my pattern, physical pattern, transform. And finding the place where I could relieve that tension and fix that process. Now, after a half a day, of this, I found that there was one posture that was perfect 
would balance everything. And I couldn't stay there for four hours because I had other things I had to do. I found it, but it was not a practical solution. So my mouth what was to go to the doctor and get a muscle relaxant. <laughs> but, right, yeah, so I mean, the so what is looking at all different kinds of possibilities. So I, I believe that the physical patterns can also be dealt with in the same way. We do work with trauma, particularly uh, with children who are in protective services. They're taken away from their parents and they are in trauma. And the tools and the research that we've done from people who work in trauma, particularly with children, is that what we realize is that the children have developed a pattern of behavior which was fit for function where they were before, right? Um, uses of anger, uses of hyperactivity, uses of hypersensitivity, all of those things were, were survival patterns in the environment where they were. So they carry those patterns embedded in emotions and cognition and physically, socially, the relationships they have with other people, what they eat, how they sleep, how they breathe. They carry those patterns. So they come in to an environment that's healthy. And those things that were adaptive in one place become maladaptive. And so what we're trying to help caregivers do, and many of the trauma-informed practices do this, to help the children become conscious of the pattern that they are experiencing. Explore what other options might be and then to choose, which is essentially what, so what, now what. Yeah. A, give the child agency over their adaptive responses. It's not, it's certainly not easy. But it's the way we conceptualize the trauma response. Yeah. That, how does that match or how's it different? Well, that, that's, um, well, it matches. Yeah. So we've had Dr. Uh, Dr. Peter Levine, who talks about this from a body sensing perspective and revisiting trauma through the, the through, um, the patterns held in the body. We've had Rolfers, which is, which is a technique developed by Ida Rolf. And that's a, based on a similar idea. Um, although focusing specifically on the fascia, the connective tissue. And then we've had uh, Dr. Franz Janov, who was, um, is the widow of Dr. Arthur Janov, who developed the, the primal um, therapy technique, which is, again, has a similar basis, but it's, it's a little less focused on the body and a little bit more focused on um, sort of the emotional experiences of the past. And so, and I've done personal work in all of those paradigms mm. and found enormously beneficial um, but it seems to chime and that one, the idea of, of looking for patterns and where I see repeated behaviors and exploring those patterns, um, as sort of behavioral manifestations, but also as they exist in my body, but also the past of this, and you, you started at the top of this, this episode talking a lot about understanding the past and how that combines in the moment to give us options for action in the future with adjacent potentials. And certainly it's been my experience that those options for action in the future are uh, guided or bounded by my past experiences to a, to a great degree. And that's been sort of one of the big insights of my work is just how strong the, the compulsion is to repeat the pattern that worked in the past. 
And if you're not conscious, it's totally strong. If you're not conscious, then you cannot choose, and the only determinant is the path. But if in that moment you become conscious of threads that are affecting, of the current manifestation of those threads, of the potential that exists in this moment, once you become conscious of those, then you can choose. And you may choose to take the muscle relaxant, or you may choose something else, right? But until you're conscious and can see the patterns in the present, you don't have choice. Another thing that we find people get stuck in often, and, and sometimes we see this in people who deal with, with trauma, with physical issues, is that they get preoccupied with the past. They want to find the root cause. They want to tell the story, tell the story, tell the story. Um, and we find that that is not very helpful either because the story is, um, can't be changed. I mean, the, the event that happened can't be changed. So we talk about doing present forward. So present, whatever of the past that is embedded in this present is what's important. And so we're going to see how it manifests itself here and make choices going forward. But we're not going to waste a lot of time telling the old stories. So in yeah, with, with conflict and, and conflict resolution, one of the first things that we do is to say, you have a story, your story is important. You live that story, you have that story. But with this moment, we're concerned about how that story is showing up here and now and what we can do here and now to create the next moment. We don't want to take away your story, but we're going to focus over here on the pattern as it is now and your choices in this moment. Um, yeah, and, and I would, so to some extent, I would challenge that a bit. I mean, I would agree that you can't change the, the story um, by, by retelling, like by just by retelling it, right? It, it may not change much. Uh, but to revisit this, the scene where the story got set up and choose a different action in that moment or allow yourself to experience a different thing in that moment is powerful as access to changing the story. Does that make sense? Yes, and what I would say is what you're visiting is what your current understanding is of that story. Right, exactly. It's, it's media. in the right, moment, present. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, you're not presenting. revisiting the past. You're presenting. That's a good word. You're not really yeah. revisiting yeah. the past. You're presenting yeah. what you're holding as being the past event, which, of course, has been you know, will not be, will be different to what was actually experienced. But I found that very powerful is to oh, absolutely. revisit the scene, not just to tell the story, I agree, but to do whatever I couldn't do then or say whatever I couldn't say then or feel whatever I couldn't feel then as a means to resolution and ultimately changing the story because in that instant, the story becomes different. It's not, I was the victim of X, let's say, it's I overcame why, and and I love I love that term by John Bradshaw. Um, it's never too late to have a happy childhood, <laughs> and and what he meant by it's, that, <laughs> we can we can give ourselves a new story, not not by telling ourselves that we had a different 
childhood, but by revisiting or reconstructing in the moment, presencing what happened and experiencing that narrative that we're holding as a, as a differently as access to building a new narrative. Yeah, exactly, Richard. And what you're touching on is what we see as causality in these systems. So um, we think that what's happening in that moment is that you have a pattern, a container, differences in exchange, which is your memory of that moment, and that there's tension that's been built up in that memory. And what you're doing is releasing that tension. Say, I'm going to make a different choice. I'm going to choose not to see myself as a victim. I'm going to reframe what that is. And so what you're doing is releasing the tension that's been locked in that self-organizing system so that it can create a new self-organizing system. And that tension accumulation in a pattern and release of that tension is how we define causality in complex systems. Um, so you can see it in our conversation right now, right? So there have been some places where we're, uh, we're agreeing, we're agreeing, we're agreeing. And then there's some places where you go like, oh, I don't know about that, right? And that, that distinction, that like, mm, I don't know about that, that tension in our dialogue, you ask a question, we surface that, that tension is released, and it's that release, that identification, Sometimes amplification, right? Sometimes you want to build the tension. Otherwise, it gets really boring in here. But how do you then build that tension and release it? And so that's, when we talk about causality in complex systems, that's what we're talking about. Where's the tension? How does it get released? Or replaced? Or adapted? Right. And, and, and just to come back to basics there, causality yeah, what do, what do you mean by causality? And, and uh, yeah, let's start there. <laughs> and how you're applying it in this case. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'm going to get really concrete, I think, about causality. So you go back to Galileo, and the idea was when things move, gravity is pulling on that, that causes them to move. When things bump into each other, they bump into each other. That the way things are connected together holds them together. But the idea was that causality is like a, an action and a reaction. Every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. There's momentum. So reading the Principia, what you see at Newton's Principia, what you see is how the objects interact to influence each other. That's what that's about. What's their mass? How fast are they moving? How far are they move? How do things bump into each other like billiard balls and cause stuff to happen? So the, the traditional mechanistic view of causality was that. But if I want to make somebody do something, I, I motivate them. I give them a reward to influence them, or I push them, or I get other people to push them. All of this is about an interaction of force in space and time is the way that we conceive of causality, historically. Well, that doesn't work so well in a complex system where there aren't just two billiard balls bumping into each other. And besides, the things that are bumping into each other don't have the, the constraints of physical objects. We're having ideas come together or 
relationships or, or emotions, right? Things that don't follow those rules of equal and opposite reaction. So that we can't use. But the question is, how is it that stuff happens? That's what I think about causality. What is it that makes something happen? Um, and when you're talking about physical things, it is impact, right? Equal and opposite interaction. The big thing, the little thing moves, there's power, there's predictability. That's what, how do things happen? How does stuff happen? And so that's that. What we think is a generalization of that to say what's really going on there is an accumulation of tension that is then resolved. And that tension, accumulation, and resolution is what makes stuff happen. And anything that happens, happens because there's been tension, accumulation, and release at some scale of the system. So it may be that inside my emotional or, or cognitive brain, there's something that's confusing or frustrating me, and that that tension is going to accumulate until I speak, that causes me to speak. Or a team has a problem they're working out, and there's tension among them of curiosity or frustration, and they come to a solution, an aha moment, or a resolution, or somebody leaves to release the tension. Or you can scale it up and think about what Brexit is. Brexit's an accumulation of tension at multiple scales of the system, seeking a release. Right. And a release at one scale has unintended consequences at other scales. So this is where, so even though we're talking about causality, we're not talking about certainty or prediction or control. Right? So a release at one scale. So think about those people who voted to exit and what a satisfaction that must have been. What a relief. Yeah, each person. Take it to the man. The... Oh, and voted. Yeah. Um, and. We couldn't predict, they couldn't at that moment predict what the effect of their vote was going to be or what the effect of the national vote was going to be. And then as you get even farther, you've got the issue about the EU and what are tensions in EU that's causing the EU to make the decisions that it is. And so each scale has a different uh, flavor, nature, substance of the tension, but still it's release right and i can see how you're and i can absolutely see how that works at the individual you know you can see that at the cell at the you know the organ at the individual at the, 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 the team or the yeah the society yeah yeah uh, you can also see how it explains newtonian physics not just that it's theory and practice practice pushing theory but a paradigm shift isn't someplace else from the old paradigm you don't have, here's one paradigm, there's the other paradigm. It doesn't work that way. The way it works is, here's a paradigm. The new paradigm 
expands and extends, but it's still got to explain what happened before because that's mm. still happened, right? You can't say, no, that never happened. It's not true. But you have to say, oh, this larger paradigm explains the new stuff, the anomalies, but it also is applicable to what was before. Right. And so what makes stuff happen in a closed, low-dimensionality system is the same it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same it's the process same or it's the same, uh, yeah. whatever we call it. Same uh, mechanism. It's mechanism. the same. Yeah. Um, and so you can imagine beard balls on a pool table, right? But that's about tension and release. You can explain all of that in terms of tension and release. Equal and opposite force, you can explain this tension and release. So... This is the more generalized explanation, which we have to have in the level of complexity we're dealing with. We've got to have a way to think and act in systems that are open and high dimension and nonlinear. Otherwise, we're victims of them. Okay, and just to um, and just to contrast that to the. Because this is, this is a slightly different way of me thinking about causality from, say, what I understood from Stacy, and he has this idea of transformative causality, and as I understand it, each agent affects the other agents around it as they affect it, and we've got this sort of continual loop of transforming and being transformed by what's around us, and is it, so that's why here. And, so how's that different from this tension release idea, or maybe it isn't? I'm just... oh, oh, great question. I think it's a special case. I think it's absolutely true. What he's talking about happens, right? That there's a tension that emerges in me that I express in language or in some kind of symbol set. You receive that. It amplifies or dance tension in you, which then you express in a symbol set that crosses our space and comes to me and that over time you and i become part of the same pattern it's not just about my pattern and your pattern but now we're looking at a pattern that involves us both so i i absolutely agree that that causality is going on um he does a really beautiful way of explaining it in that particular case where he's looking at human agents communications exchanges, and differences of identity that make a difference. So I would say that C that he's looking at is the individual person or the group. The D he's looking at is the sense of um, awareness or relationship. Relationship, I guess he'd say. And that the exchange is this communication exchange of some kind. And that, that's absolutely true. It's a special case of the CDE pattern intervention large. I'd say the same thing about Snowden, right? So the Kinefin, it's a boundary with differences that make a difference. He's got the four parts plus mm. the one that he's kind of put in there. Um, and there are connected differences among them and there are ways to connect and move across them. So it's a special case. Very useful in some contexts, but not generalizable. Not generalizable. Okay, well, why is it not generalizable? Because if I'm working in a system that's not bounded, or if I have all of those things happening at the same place in the same time, oh. or 
I have to act in a chaotic space. There's no way for me to drag it over into control space so I can do something. That I've got to live and act there. If I don't have control, I mean, that's part of the assumption, I think, underlying Snowden's connection. And we're not here really to analyze it. And I, mm-hmm. I want to mark, too, I, don't underst- I certainly don't understand their work to the depth and in the way that they understand their work. So in the yeah. same way, I wouldn't want them to critique mine with their ignorance of my work. I don't want to critique theirs with my ignorance of theirs. Um, but one of the things that it seems to me is that there's an assumption in the Kinefin that I am a person of power over the system, that I can identify a part, focus on a part, move it into the control space, that the point is for me to exercise my control over the system. Um, so, so it's essentially... Positive, positive, positive positivistic for your liking potentially um yes and no so conversations i've had with dave about that um go back and forth so uh maybe yes maybe no i do think of it as an epistemological frame much more that's the problem with it's being positivistic i think of it as an epistemological frame it's a it's a set of categories and categorizing is really helpful. But knowing the categories that things go in will not change the world described by those categories. So, yeah. No. Well, I think I'm not sure. So he... it's, a, it's another, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't agree. Right, but it's, a, and I'm way out of my depth for getting into critiquing the different models, but it's, um, yeah, as I said to you before we came on the call, actually, being a student of complexity, it feels like you once you, you take a few steps in, you're like, okay, what's we've got Kevin here, we've got Stacey say something else, we've got we've got human systems dynamics and, and, and gender so yeah, it's a it's a I, I get it's a pretty divergent space, I would say. It is indeed, it is indeed, and my goal was to find um, find a way to think about the dynamics of the whole without um, reducing them to the predictable side. So how could I find a way to talk to the complex system or talk about the complex system in its own language? And this is where the pattern language came to be. And as simple as it is, I see it, and the people who work with me, see it as the most generalized version, universally applicable, and um, open for uh, making concrete in any way, in the same way that anything that's universal is. So we, we embrace many, many, in fact, any approach to complexity, we say, if it works, great, go with it. But if it isn't matching the current situation, it's not going to work. So it's this, where are you on the continuum? Which direction is going to be most useful and how do you move there? And so sometimes the clients, I use Kinefin. There's some people with whom I use it less often, the complex responsive processes. I've been in places where 
that exchange is so limited that until they can begin to connect each other, nothing else is going to happen. And so I enter through spaces. Um, so yeah, it, it is an, an, an amazing uh, explosion, which is another sign of the paradigm shift, is that when the paradigm begins to fall apart, there's an explosion of possible pathways. Then after the, as one begins to be reinforced by the rest of the system, then it settles into the new paradigm. But there's a bar of complexity approaches and the tensions among them is the necessary cause for the emergence of the next pattern, whatever it is. Right. That's, that's a fascinating insight. Because now I think if you were to look at the MBA programs, let's say across the globe, and the Stacey makes this point, is they're all kind of saying the same thing, right? There's not massive disagreements in how each of them views managing a company. And yet, if you look into the complexity literature, which is much smaller by comparison, there's a, yeah, a panoply of, of views. And, uh, and, and so it's actually intellectually exhilarating to be uh, exploring the space, I find. Um, yeah. Yeah. But as you say, uh, such fun! Uh, it's such fun, and it's been fun to watch the social development of the field from the time when I was—I thought I was the only person in the world doing this work for a few years—and then finding a little community of people um, who were asking similar questions and answering them in different ways. This was 1991. There was a, uh, the first meeting of a group called the Chaos Network. And um, just to find the fact that there were other people who were asking these questions and the differences in the ways that we were looking at them was fascinating and delightful. And so there's been a kind of um, sociological development of the work over time, which has been a study in itself. And you're that pattern. Yeah. Right. The, the bringing these different ideas together concentrating them in a communication medium that's accessible, carrying your insights and questions from one place to another. You're a part of that evolution, evolutionary consolidation, clarification, transformation of the field. Thank you, I think. <laughs> no, 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 thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, now, given all we've said, it may be difficult for you to provide a, a, a concise answer to this, this question, but I do like to ask it to a lot of the guests is, um, as, as we close out, for you, Glenda, what, what does it mean to be human? Lovely question. It means to be able to see patterns, understand them in creative ways, Take intentional action to influence them and to learn for the next cycle. But that, for me, is the essential humanity. Beautifully put. Okay. Um, so, for those who have been fascinated by this conversation, they want to learn more, um, where would you recommend the best places for them to start to look? Good question. So um, the first thing to do is to go to our website, which is 
hsdinstitute.org. And there is there a resources tab. And in that tab, you can keyword search for, I think there are like 300 items there. Some of them are videos, some short papers, some longer papers, um, some recordings of webinars. It's just many, many resources there. That's a really good place to start. Key in, type in a word of something that you're interested in, see what shows up. The second thing is, on the website, you can send a note to info at hsdinstitute.org and get on our mailing list. And our mailing list, we send blog posts and announcements out on a regular basis. And that way, you could stay up to date. We do once a month, hour long, on a variety of topics. To join one of those, just there's a learning opportunities tab on the website. And there's a list of live virtual workshops that are coming up. Pick a topic that sounds good and come good. Um, it's important that you know that our intellectual property policy is totally open. That anyone who learns anything from us is welcome to use it wherever and however they want to. We just ask that they cite the source so people can get more. And when they learn that they teach back, because as you use this work, if you're using this work, you'll learn new things, and then it teaches back into the community. So that's what I would suggest. Start with the website. Um, you'll also find several books there uh, on different topics and different levels of complexity. I'm not sure that the Adaptive Action book is the right place for most people to start. Right. Yeah, I mean, my I'll, I'll put the, the book up for those who are watching on, uh, on YouTube. But, that's uh, the Adaptive Action book. Yeah, if you're... Uh, that's the Adaptive Action book, which you wrote with your sister, right? Yes, yes. Um, so certainly, I think, yeah. I mean, I found it pretty accessible. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's very practical. Um, there's a whole section on just case studies. So it's, yeah. But as you say, it's, it's, I guess it's a relatively, well, it's a relatively long book. Um, and there may be sh something you can digest more, more quickly and easily from, from the website, as you say. Um, all good places to start. Great. Okay. Well, we'll make sure we put links to to the website into the into the show description. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much for sharing your time, your insights, answering the questions. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. You're very welcome. I uh, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Okay. See you. Bye bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.